Hello, everyone, and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I am excited to be with you today to talk about hold period versus being long on multifamily real estate. Sounds a little contrarian to talk about hold periods in the range of five years when we say we want to be long in multifamily. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today is how we actually reconcile those two into a strategy that we believe provides stability and security and at the same time can optimize cash flow and equity growth and take advantage of the unique capabilities that real estate has when it comes to taxes. So let's, um, let's start with just some definitions. When we say that we're long on multifamily, I was chatting with someone the other day, a uh, individual who's very interested in uh, real estate and just kind of coming up to speed. And I happened to mention that we are long on multifamily and they go, what do you mean you're long on multifamily? What, <laughs> what does long mean? Uh, so for those of you that, uh, that aren't familiar with all the different terminology that people will toss about on occasion, and pardon us if we're guilty of that uh, every now and then, uh, being long on an investment or an investment class uh, means you like that uh, uh, class and you're looking to invest in it uh, over time. And you believe that it's going to be a positive performing investment for some time to come contrasted with when you are short or shorting an investment, essentially where you're betting against the investment. Um, so we're, we're not short on multifamily, we're long on multifamily. And the reason we're long on multifamily uh, really fits into uh, three different uh, categories, three different drivers. The first is there's a very substantial imbalance between supply and demand in the multifamily space in particular in the class B space that we operate in. It exists as well in the other classes uh, to a lesser extent in class C uh, and to a much lesser extent in class A, although you, you'll still see a, a shortage overall. And that shortage doesn't just exist today. It is something that you can look at and see is going to continue for some extended period of time if you understand what the drivers are, in particular on the demand side and the restraints on the supply side. So uh, baby boomers and the echo of that boom uh, are very substantial demographic groups, about 80 million each. So you're looking at about half of the US population fitting into those two uh, cohorts. Uh, boomers are moving into that retirement phase of their lives and they are uh, downsizing and renting in the same proportion that prior generations have. So there's nothing really unique about boomers. There's just a lot more of them. And so when you take 15 or 20%, which are the kind of numbers generally that move into the rental market and you, uh, and you then apply that to 75 or 80 million uh, folks in the population, you get a really substantial number of households that are in that rental space. Likewise, with the echo boomers, uh, this is the generation that today, uh, in many ways, would love to be owning homes. 
not maybe as much as, as the prior generations, but certainly there's a substantial number of desirable homeowners in that group that simply aren't able to. Wages for some of them simply haven't kept pace with the price of housing. Uh, you also have the impact of student loan debt, which just can't be overlooked in terms of the restraint it places on lots of different segments of the economy where individuals that are burdened with that debt simply don't have the cash flow available to make other investments, whether it's buying a home uh, or other activities in their life. So you've got a lot of uh, those factors, combine it with just continued population growth, especially population growth amongst individuals that are less inclined to own homes, uh, in particular in the urban areas. Um, and these would be, for example, more recent immigrants uh, to the United States. Homeownership in the US is, is uh, generally higher than it is in many countries uh, where immigrants might uh, come from. And so it uh, can take as long as maybe a generation before an immigrant household, uh, uh, that cohort will own homes in the same proportion as uh, the current population. Uh, and then you can add to that simply the home ownership rate, which again, I mentioned urban environments. Uh, while the national rate is more or less back to where it ought to have been all along, it, you know, we got very close to 70% and then uh, decreased substantially, which pushed an enormous amount of people into the rental space. Um, uh, but we're kind of back to where we're supposed to be, roughly around 63%. Some forecast that it's going to decrease, that may in fact uh, be the case. Uh, there really isn't any evidence out there that we're going to increase back to the 70% rates that we saw previously, so not a big swing in the other direction. In urban areas, which again, our investments tend to be in larger uh, metropolitan areas, 200, 300, 400,000 uh, population on the small side up, upwards of you know, millions in the larger markets that we invest in. And uh, in those environments, it's much closer to 50-50, um, 48, 52, those kind of numbers. So. Uh, when you have all of that demand, you would expect the market to respond with a lot of new supply. And there is new supply. It's almost exclusively in the A space or in the heavily subsidized uh, uh, government uh, sector. Uh, otherwise, there's just not really any, uh, although maybe some, I'll have to say it that way just because I'd never want to use an absolute, but there's just not a great deal of new supply coming on in the class B space. A lot of that has to do simply with the fact that it costs more to construct new inventory than you can buy existing inventory for. Um, and if, as long as that holds true, there simply isn't gonna be a lot of new development in that class B space. If you're gonna spend the kind of money you have to spend to build a new unit, you spend just a little bit more and you make it an A where you have a chance, in fact, to make a return on that investment. So that supply demand imbalance is in place today and going to continue for an extended period of time. That's one of the reasons we're long on multifamily. Another is we just we like it and real estate in general because it's a hard asset, right? It's not it's not a paper investment like a, a stock. Uh, for example, uh, you can actually go touch this, right? You can you can go to the property and it's an actual physical thing that you can uh, hold in the same way that people like buying gold, right? And having gold in their portfolio because it's it's an actual thing, right? And that it's actually a commodity that's uh, 
much more tied to value over long periods of time. Another component, and, and it's the last one I'll mention today, is uh, if you think in terms of what consumers spend their dollars on, and consumers spend their dollars on lots of things, right? They spend it on transportation, right? Whether it's uh, you know a really nice uh, car or a um, uh, you know uh, living near the uh, public transportation system, but you know they spend money getting to and from work. They um, uh, you know they spend money on um, uh, vacations. They spend money on their brand new smartphone on a really nice cable TV and internet package, uh, lots and lots of things. Uh, and yet, if you really start to boil it down, uh, things like, well, I need to be able to get to work. Well, you don't need a really fancy car. Maybe the public transportation I just mentioned actually works just fine. I need a phone uh, to be able to communicate with folks. Do I really need a $1,000 or a $1,500 smartphone? Probably not. Uh, do I need a 300 uh, channel cable package? Probably not. Do I need a place to live? Yeah, I need a place to live. I have to have a roof over my head. I have to have food to eat. So when you really start looking at the essentials that someone has in their, uh, in their financial life, where they're gonna have to spend money, housing's a significant part of that. And so when you put all those together, that we've got a supply-demand imbalance, that we're investing in hard assets, and that it's part of this food and shelter uh, portion of the economy, uh, it makes for a very stable place to invest. So that's why we're long. That's why we're very uh, positive uh, about the future of multifamily. So that's the long side of it. So how do our hold periods reconcile with that? Because we don't hold properties very long, uh, as in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, even though we have faith and confidence and data that supports being in multifamily over that 10 year, 15 year, 20 year uh, time frame. So how do we how do we reconcile those? And the way that we do that is is this is we we think in terms of individual asset holds that together can aggregate into a long position in multifamily. The reason we think in terms of a five-year hold for most assets uh, is this. We are value-add investors. Uh, and what I mean by that is when we purchase an asset, we're looking to purchase an asset that's in good health, has good solid performance, maybe it's 90% occupied or better, that can cash flow right out of the gate without any improvements uh, being made to it. Uh, we look for assets that are in solid markets that have uh, safe neighborhoods and good schools and a whole host of other uh, factors. Um, and we want those to be assets where we can make some modest capital investments and get some reasonable movements in rent. For example, we might invest five, eight, ten thousand dollars in each unit, and we'd look to move the rents. 10% or 15% or something in that range. We're not looking for properties that are half occupied and that need tens of thousands of dollars per unit in investment to rehab them. There are properties like that out there and those are potentially very successful investments. They simply have higher risk and we're, we're more conservative in terms of all of that. So when we look at an asset, we're looking to make some improvements. 
takes a couple years to make improvements. And then you need about a year after those improvements are done before the property stabilizes. So you're looking at three, maybe even into the fourth year before you've got a solid, stabilized, healthy property performing at that higher level based on the value add. That's where the window would begin to open for us in terms of potentially exiting that asset, with five years being maybe where we would target it. Now, why would we want to get out? If it's a good asset and it's performing well, why wouldn't we hold it? Because we're long in multifamily, why wouldn't we be long in that asset? And there's two reasons I'll give you for that. Um, the first is, as we've made those improvements, the property has grown in value. And by the way, all of this is going to be true for those of you that invest with Mara Poling or invest with a firm like Mara Poling, uh, as well as for those of you that uh, are trying to do this work on your own with a small uh, personal portfolio of single family rentals or the like. Now, in, the, in that residential space, you won't see the same kind of growth. Uh, because the growth in value is not necessarily driven by the growth in income of the asset uh, as it is in the commercial space. And for those of you that aren't Mara Poling clients and have invested with others, those other sponsors, those other management firms may not employ all of the strategies that we employ, and therefore you might have a different experience with them uh, in terms of returns and, and holds and so on. Uh, our fund, the Mara Polling Total Return Fund, which is the current vehicle we have available for folks, is structured to operate over a long period of time, but not by holding individual assets long. Again, as I said, we'd look for about five years. And the reason we're looking for five years, let me get back to that, is uh, one, as the property has grown in value from that value add, we've gone from having a uh, equity position that might be um, uh, twenty-five percent of the asset, or thirty percent of the asset. So, meaning a, a loan to value, an effective loan to value of seventy or seventy-five percent at purchase. Well, that number has dropped into the sixties. That actually happens pretty quick, and then it's gotten into the fifties. And we're actually by year five, potentially, if not likely, approaching a fifty-fifty number, meaning that we now have. Uh, half of the value of the property in equity and only half uh, covered by debt. Well, you'd think that having a lower loan to value, a lower effective loan to value would make a property more stable, more secure. And that's absolutely true when you purchase an asset. And it's true for some period of time as you grow the value of the asset. When you get below a certain threshold, there's incrementally very little additional security gained by building up that equity inside the property. The difference in security between having a property where you have a effective loan to value of 55% is not substantially different than one at 50% or at 45%. Those lower loan to value amounts simply don't add that much more in the way of uh, security. Therefore, when you get to those kinds of numbers, you're really in an area where you're beginning to build up lazy equity. Equity in the asset that's not doing anything. You're not making a return off of it. Those dollars are simply sitting there and you could put them to work doing other things. You could 
sell and distribute those, take them as cash, right? And make other investments with them or simply enjoy the, the benefit that that's created. You could reinvest those in another uh, property and making some improvements to another property you own, where you could actually just buy a new property, right? You could do those things. So that's one of the drivers. And at the exact same time, the tax uh, value of the property, right? Because we start out losing money, right? We get depreciation in real estate. It's a great thing that we're afforded. It uh, reinforces the value of making capital investments, right? That's why we get to write depreciation off. And while we continue to write depreciation off, and in some instances, fairly meaningful amounts of depreciation uh, based on the, the different methodologies that we might employ uh, at Mara Polling to do that, uh, we get a really nice depreciation uh, deduction and we're growing the value and the net income of the property. So at some point in time, we're, we're, we don't have enough to lose money. We are now making money. And as you begin to make money, while some of those losses can be carried forward, you do eventually get to a place where you're generating taxable income and you have some tax exposure. So the combination of that growth in uh, taxable income from losses to positive taxable income and the development of lazy equity kind of come together somewhere around year five where it makes sense to start looking at is there something we might be able to do with this property? Now, we'll typically structure a property uh, with some flexibility. So there's a potential to maybe exit via a sale exchange around year four, maybe year five, and potentially up through even year seven. Uh, and if we ultimately decided that that didn't make sense, we could hold the property longer term. Um, generally, that wouldn't be our plan, um, right? So we would look to sell that property and then take the proceeds and via a 1031 in some instances, um, uh, potentially not all instances, but we'd certainly look to do that uh, if, uh, if it made sense, uh, to reinvest and purchase a larger property. And then we would do the same five-year hold with that asset. And then we would go and uh, again, a 1031 and move to a third asset and potentially even a fourth asset so that over for example, over a 20-year time frame, you could be looking at four different properties, each one of them larger than the uh, prior property and generating more cash, more equity growth, not because they're more uh, risky or more aggressive assets, simply because you're now playing with house money. You're taking that lazy equity and reinvesting it so it grows uh, more uh, quickly. If you do that, then what, look what you've just done. You've now built a 20-year hold period in multifamily, but you've done it with a bunch of individual holds. Uh, and that is exactly the strategy that we uh, use in executing our long position in multifamily. Now, for those of you that are in the residential space, uh, and I, by the way, I love chatting with everyone. I, I, on a regular basis, get calls from folks that are in the residential space. They're not looking to invest uh, in the um, uh, larger assets as, uh, as we are, uh, and I'm happy to chat with you. But one of the challenges I, I run into pretty regularly with folks is individuals who like the idea of, I, I bought a duplex and my strategy is to hold it forever and let my tenants pay 
uh, it off and then I'll own it free and clear and live off the cash flow. That is a completely appropriate strategy and maybe exactly what you ought to do, right? You should do the math and talk to your uh, tax advisor and make sure you understand all the implications. And I would encourage you to do the math along the lines of what I just described. Uh, even if it's not selling that asset, which again may be advantageous, giving you the chance to have some fresh depreciation, uh, looking at certainly freeing up that lazy equity through either a refinance or a additional uh, debt on the asset uh, so that you can grow your asset base. And as you grow your asset base, uh, the math uh, most likely, uh, certainly our math says this, uh, says you'll get a higher return and you can do so without increasing your effective risk. Uh, that's a great way to be long in multifamily and as I said, optimize cash flow and equity growth and the tax advantages that you can get from uh, multifamily real estate. Now, I've mentioned several times the way Mara Polling does it, and I'd encourage you swing by our website, uh, take a look at the Learning Center. There's some good material there that could be uh, helpful to you. So that's marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. You're more than welcome to send me an email, especially those of you that might have interest in working with us or at least learning more about how uh, the total return fund operates and how we actually execute the strategy I've described here today. Uh, you can email me, pat at marapolling.com, uh, and I'm happy to uh, uh, chat with you and discuss exactly what it is that we do uh, to, uh, to execute this strategy. Um, so when you're thinking about the hold period for an individual asset, uh, that is not the same as being long in multifamily. You can be long in an investment and not have to hold individual assets a long period of time. Uh, one of the things that's very nice about the commercial real estate space is the relative liquidity of assets, that there is always a market to sell assets and to buy replacement or new assets. And that liquidity in the marketplace allows for this strategy to work. Uh, you could imagine what it would be like if, uh, if selling an asset was a very difficult thing to do, then potentially a strategy of holding them extremely long-term might make some sense. Um, uh, we talked a couple weeks back about cap rates. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, session because uh, a lot of folks will get uh, will look at what I've just described and say, oh, but what if you're going to sell when cap rates have moved up? Uh, for those of you that aren't regular listeners, uh, higher cap rates means lower prices. Uh, so do, what happens if I go to sell and cap rates have moved up? If you're using this strategy, uh, there's actually great benefit in doing that, and you should go back and listen to the uh, session we did on cap rates. Uh, or as I said, feel free to shoot me an email, uh, pat at morapolling.com. I hope uh, today's session has been of value and, and helped you think about uh, hold periods for individual assets a little bit uh, differently. As I said, if you have questions, shoot me an email, swing by the website, marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And be sure to listen next week for our next episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.